0: Caesar's Column, a story of the 20th century, written by Ignatius Donnelly, under the pen name Edmund Boisilbert, an adult brain audiobook production, read by Graham Dunlop. Chapter 1. The Great City. This book is a series of letters from Gabriel Wellstein in New York. To his brother Heinrich Wallstein, in the state of Uganda, Africa, New York, September tenth, 1988. My dear brother, here I am, at last, in the great city. My eyes are weary with gazing and my mouth speechless with admiration, but in my brain rings perpetually the thought, Wonderful, wonderful, most wonderful. What an infinite thing is man, as revealed in the tremendous civilization he has built up. These swarming, laborious, all-capable ants seem great enough to attack heaven itself, if they could but find a resting place for their ladders. Who can fix a limit to the intelligence or the achievements of our species? But our admiration may be here and our hearts elsewhere, and so from all this glory and splendor I turn back to the old homestead amid the high mountain valleys of Africa to the primitive, simple shepherd life, to my beloved mother, to you, and to all our dear ones. This gorgeous, gilded room fades away, and I see the leaning hills, the trickling streams, the deep gorges where our woolly thousands graze, and I hear once more the echoing Swiss horns of our herdsmen reverberating from the snow-tipped mountains. But my dream is gone. The roar of the mighty city rises around me like a bellow of many cataracts. New York contains now ten million inhabitants. It is the largest city that is or ever has been in the world. It is difficult to say where it begins or ends, for the villas extend in almost unbroken succession clear to Philadelphia, while east, west, and north noble habitations spread out mile after mile, far beyond municipal limits. But the wonderful city, let me tell you of it, As we approached it in our airship, coming from the east, we could see, a hundred miles before we reached the continent, the radiance of its millions of magnetic lights reflected on the sky, like the glare of a great conflagration. These lights are not fed, as in the old time, from electric dynamos, but the magnetism of the planet itself is harnessed for the use of man. That marvelous earth force, which the Indians called the Dance of the Spirits, And civilized man, designated the Aurora Borealis, is now used to illuminate this great metropolis with a clear, soft, white light, like that of the full moon, but many times brighter. And the force is so cunningly conserved that it is returned to the earth without any loss of magnetic power to the planet. Man has simply made a temporary loan from nature for which he pays no interest. Night and day are all one, for the magnetic light increases automatically as the daylight wanes, and the business parts of the city swarm as much at midnight as at high noon. In the old times, I am told, part of the streets was reserved for footpaths for men and women, while the middle was given up to horses and wheeled vehicles, and one could not pass from side to side without danger of being trampled to death by the horses. But as the city grew, it was found that the pavements would not hold the mighty surging multitudes. They were crowded into the streets, and many accidents occurred. The authorities were at length compelled to exclude all horses from the streets, in the business parts of the city, and raise the central parts to a level with the sidewalks, and give them up to the exclusive use of the pedestrians, erecting stone pillars here and there to divide the multitude moving in one direction from those flowing in another. These streets are covered with roofs of glass, which exclude the rain and snow, but not the air and then the wonder and glory of the shops. They surpass all description. Below all the business streets are subterranean streets, where vast trains are drawn by smokeless and noiseless electric motors, some carrying passengers, others freight. At every street corner there are electric elevators, by which passengers can ascend or descend to the trains. And high above the housetops, built on steel pillars, there are other railroads, not like the unsightly elevated trains we saw pictures of in our school books, but crossing diagonally over the city at a great height, so as to best economize time and distance. The whole territory between Broadway and the Bowery and Broom Street and Houston Street is occupied by the depot grounds of the great intercontinental airlines. And it is an astonishing sight to see the ships ascending and descending like monstrous birds black with swarming masses of passengers to or from England, Europe, South America, the Pacific coast, Australia, China, India, and Japan. These airlines are of two kinds, the anchored and the independent. The former are hung by revolving wheels upon great wires suspended in the air. The wires, held in place by metallic balloons, fish-shaped, made of aluminum, and constructed to turn with the wind so as to present always the least surface to the air currents. These balloons, where the lines cross the oceans, are secured to huge floating islands of timber, which are in turn anchored to the bottom of the sea by four immense metallic cables, extending north, south, east, and west, and powerful enough to resist any storms. These artificial islands contain dwellings in which men reside, who keep up the supply of gas necessary for the balloons. The independent airlines are huge, cigar-shaped balloons, unattached to the earth moving by electric power, with such tremendous speed and force as to be as little affected by the winds as a cannonball. In fact, unless the wind is directed ahead, the sails of the craft are so set as to take advantage of it like the sails of a ship and the balloon rises or falls, as the birds do, by the angle at which it is placed to the wind, the stream of air forcing it up or pressing it down, as the case may be. And just as the old-fashioned steamships were provided with boats, in which the passengers were expected to take refuge, if the ship was about to sink, so the upper decks of these air vessels are supplied with parachutes, from which are suspended boats, And in case of accident, two sailors and ten passengers are assigned to each parachute. And long practice has taught the bold craftsmen to descend gently in the light in the sea, even in stormy weather, with as much adroitness as a seagull. In fact, the whole population of air sailors has grown up to manage these ships, never dreamed of by our ancestors. The speed of these aerial vessels is, as you know, very great, 36 hours suffices to pass from New York to London in ordinary weather. The loss of life has been less than on the old-fashioned steamships, for as those which go east move at a greater elevation than those going west, there is no danger of collisions, and they usually fly above the fogs which add so much to the dangers of sea travel. In case of hurricanes, they rise at once to the higher levels above the storm, and with our increased scientific knowledge, The coming of a cyclone is known for many days in advance, and even the stratum of air in which it will move can be foretold. I could spend hours, my dear brother, telling you of the splendor of this hotel, called the Darwin, in honor of the great English philosopher of the last century. It occupies an entire block from 5th Avenue to Madison Avenue, and from 46th Street to 47th. The whole structure consists of an infinite series of cunning adjustments for the delight and gratification of the human creature. One object seems to be to relieve the guests from all necessity for muscular exertion. The ancient elevator, or lift, as they called it in England, has expanded until now whole rooms filled with ladies and gentlemen are bodily carried up from the first story to the roof. A professional musician playing the while on the piano not the old-fashioned thing our grandmothers used, but a huge instrument capable of giving forth all sounds of harmony from the trill of a nightingale to the thunders of an orchestra. And when you reach the roof of the hotel, you find yourself in a glass-covered tropical forest, filled with the perfume of many flowers, and bright with the scintillating plumage of darting birds. All sounds of sweetness fill the air and many glorious star-eyed maidens, guests of the hotel wander half-seen amid the foliage, like the horries in the Mohammedan's heaven. But as I found myself growing hungry, I descended to the dining-room. It is three hundred feet long, a vast multitude, where they are eating in perfect silence. It is considered bad form to interrupt digestion with speech, as such a practice tends to draw the vital powers it is said away from the stomach to the head. Our forefathers were expected to shine in conversation and be wise and witty while gulping their food between brilliant passages. I sat down at a table to which I was marshaled by a grave and reverend signor in an imposing uniform. As I took my seat, my weight set some machinery in motion. A few feet in front of me suddenly rose out of the table a large upright mirror, or such I took it to be. But instantly there appeared on its surface a grand bill of fare, each article being numbered. The whole world had been ransacked to produce the viands named in it. Neither the frozen recesses of the north nor the sweltering regions of the south had been spared. Every form of food, animal, and vegetable, bird, beast, reptile, fish, the foot of an elephant, the hump of a buffalo, the edible bird nests of China, snails, spiders, shellfish the strange and luscious creatures lately found in the extreme depths of the ocean and fished for with dynamite. In fact, every form of food pleasant to the palate of man was there. For as you know, there are men who make fortunes now by preserving and breeding the game animals like the deer, the moose, the elk, the buffalo, the antelope, the mountain sheep and goat, and many others, which but for their care would long since have become extinct. They select barren regions in mild climates not fit for agriculture and enclosing large tracts with wire fences. They raise great quantities of these valuable game animals, which they sell to the wealthy gormans of the great cities at very high prices. I was perplexed, and turning to the great man who stood near me, I began to name a few of the articles I wanted. He smiled complacently at my country ignorance and called my attention to the fact that the table immediately before me contained hundreds of little knobs or buttons, each one numbered, and he told me that these were connected by electrical wires with the kitchen of the hotel, and if I would observe the numbers attached to any articles in the bill of fare which I desired, and would touch the corresponding numbers of the knobs before me, my dinner would be ordered on a similar mirror in the kitchen, and speedily served. I did as he directed. In a little while, an electric bell near me rang. The bell of fare disappeared from the mirror. There was a slight clicking sound. The table parted in front of me, the electric knobs moving aside, and up through the opening rose my dinner, carefully arranged, as upon a table which exactly filled the gap caused by the recession of that part of the original table, which contained the electric buttons. I need not say I was astonished. I commenced to eat, and immediately the same bell, which had announced the disappearance of the Bill of fare rang again. I looked up, and the mirror now contained the name of every state in the Republic, from Hudson's Bay to the Isthmus of Darien, and the names of all the nations of the world, each name being numbered. My attendant, perceiving my perplexity, called my attention to the fact that the sides of the table which had brought up my dinner contained another set of electric buttons corresponding with the numbers on the mirror, and he explained to me that if I would select any state or country and touch the corresponding button, the news of the day from that state or country would appear in the mirror. He called my attention to the fact that every guest in the room had in front of him a similar mirror, and many of them were reading the news of the day as they ate. I touched the knob, corresponding with the name of the new state of Uganda in Africa, and immediately there appeared in the mirror all the doings of the people of that state. Its crimes, its accidents, its business, the output of its mines, the markets, the sayings and doings of its prominent men. In fact, the whole life of the community was unrolled before me like a panorama. I then touched the button for another African state, Nianza. And at once I began to read of new lines of railroad, new steamship fleets upon the Great Lake, of large colonies of white men settling new states, upon the higher lands of the interior, of their colleges, books, newspapers, and particularly of a dissertation upon the genius of Chaucer, written by a Zulu professor, which had created considerable interest among the learned societies of the Transvaal, I touched the button for China and read the important news that the Republican Congress of that great and highly civilized nation had decreed that English, the universal language of the rest of the globe, should be hereafter used in the courts of justice and taught in all the schools. Then came the news that a Manchurian professor, an iconoclast, had written a learned work in English to prove that George Washington's genius and moral greatness had been much overrated by the partiality of his countrymen. He was answered by a learned doctor of Japan who argued that the greatness of all great men consisted simply in opportunity, and that for every illustrious name that shone in the pages of history associated with important events, a hundred abler men had lived and died unknown. The battle was raging hotly, and all Japan and China were divided into contending factions upon this great issue. Our poor ignorant ancestors of a hundred years ago drank alcohol in various forms, in quantities which the system could not consume or assimilate, and it destroyed their organs and shortened their lives. Great agitations arose until the manufacture and sale of alcoholic beverages was prohibited over nearly all the world. At length, the scientists observed that the craving was based on a natural want of the system, that alcohol was found in small quantities in nearly every article of food and that the true course was to so increase the amount of alcohol in the food without gratifying the palate, as to meet the real necessities of the system and prevent a decrease of the vital powers. It is laughable to read of those days when men were drugged with pills, boluses, and powders. Now our physic is in our food, and the doctor prescribes a series of articles to be eaten or avoided, as the case may be. One can see at once by consulting his vital watch which shows every change in the magnetic and electric forces of the body, just how his physical strength wanes or increases, and he can modify his diet accordingly. He can select, for instance, a dish highly charged with quinine, or iron, and yet perfectly palatable. Hence, among the wealthier classes, a man of 100 is as common nowadays as a man of 70 was a century ago, and many go far beyond that point in full possession of all their faculties. I glanced around the great dining room and inspected my neighbors. They all carried the appearance of wealth. They were quiet, decorous, and courteous. But I could not help noticing that the women, young and old, were much alike in some particulars, as if some general causes had molded them into the same form. Their brows were all fine, broad, square, and deep from the ear forward, and their jaws also were firmly developed, square like a soldier's while the profiles were classic in their regularity and marked by great firmness. The most peculiar feature was their eyes. They had none of that soft, gentle, benevolent look which so adorns the expression of my dear mother and other good women whom we know. On the contrary, their looks were bold, penetrating, immodest, if I may so express it, almost to fierceness. They challenged you. They invited you. They held intercourse with your soul. The chief features in the expression of the man were incredulity, unbelief, cunning, observation, heartlessness. I did not see a good face in the whole room. Powerful faces there were, I grant you. High noses, resolute mouths, fine brows. All the marks of shrewdness and energy, a forcible and capable race. But that was all. I did not see one, my dear brother, of whom I could say— That man would sacrifice himself for another. That man loves his fellow man. I could not but think how universal and irresistible must have been the influences of the age that could mold all these men and women into the same soulless likeness. I pitied them. I pitied mankind, caught in the grip of such wide-spreading tendencies. I said to myself, Where is it all to end? What are we to expect of a race without heart or honor? What may we look for when the powers of the highest civilization supplement the instincts of tigers and wolves? Can the brain of man flourish when the heart is dead? I rose and left the room. I had observed that the air of the hotel was sweeter, purer, and cooler than that of the streets outside. I asked one of the attendants for an explanation. He took me out to where we could command a view of the whole building, and showed me that a great canvas pipe rose high above the hotel. And tracing it upwards, far as the eye could reach, he pointed out a balloon anchored by cables so high up as to be dwarfed to a mere speck against the face of the blue sky. He told me that the great pipe was double, that through one division rose the hot, exhausted air of the hotel, and that the powerful draft so created operated machinery which pumped down the pure, sweet air from a higher region several miles above the earth. And the current, once established, the weight of the colder atmosphere kept up the movement, and the air was then distributed by pipes to every part of the hotel. He told me also that the hospitals of the city were supplied in the same manner, and the result had been, he said, to diminish the mortality of the sick one half, for the air so brought to them was perfectly free from bacteria and full of all life-giving properties. My company had been organized to supply the houses of the rich with this cold, pure air for so much a thousand feet, as long ago illuminating gas was furnished. I could not help but think that there was need that some man should open connection with the upper regions of God's charity, and bring down the pure, beneficent spirit of brotherly love to this afflicted earth, that it might spread through all the tainted hospitals of corruption for the healing of the hearts and souls of the people. This attendant, a sort of upper servant I suppose, was quite courteous and polite, and seeing that I was a stranger he proceeded to tell me that the whole city was warmed with hot water, drawn from the profound depths of the earth, and distributed as drinking water, was distributed a century ago in pipes to all the houses, for a fixed and very reasonable charge. This heat supply is so uniform and so cheap that it has quite driven out all the old forms of fuel. Wood, coal, natural gas, etc. And then he told me something which shocked me greatly. You know that according to our old-fashioned ideas, it is unjustifiable for any person to take his own life and thus rush into the presence of his Maker before he is called. We are of the opinion of Hamlet that God has fixed his canon against self-slaughter. Would you believe it, my dear brother, in this city they actually facilitate suicide? A race of philosophers has arisen in the last fifty years who argue that, as man was not consulted about his coming into the world, he has a perfect right to leave it whenever it becomes uncomfortable. These strange arguments were supplemented by the economists, always a powerful body in this utilitarian land, and they urged that, as men could not be prevented from destroying themselves, If they had made up their minds to do so, they might just as well shuffle off the mortal coil in the way that would give least trouble to their surviving fellow citizens. That, as it was, they polluted the rivers and even the reservoirs of drinking water with their dead bodies and put the city to great expense and trouble to recover and identify them. Then came the humanitarians, who said that many persons intent on suicide, but knowing nothing of the best means of effecting their object, tore themselves to pieces with cruel pistol shots or knife wounds or took corrosive poisons, which subjected them to agonizing tortures for hours before death came to their relief. And they argued that if a man had determined to leave the world, it was a matter of humanity to help him out of it by the pleasantest means possible. These views at length prevailed, and now in all public squares or parks they have erected handsome houses, beautifully furnished with baths and bedrooms. If a man has decided to die, he goes there. He is first photographed, then his name, if he sees fit to give it, is recorded with his residence, and his directions are taken as to the disposition of his body. There are tables at which he can write his farewell letters to his friends. A doctor explains to him the nature and effect of the different poisons, and he selects the kind he prefers. He is expected to bring with him the clothes in which he intends to be cremated. Swallows a little pill, lies down upon a bed, or, if he prefers it, in his coffin. Pleasant music is played for him. He goes to sleep and wakes up on the other side of the great line. Every day, hundreds of people, men and women, perish in this way. And they are borne off to the great furnaces for the dead and consumed. The authorities assert that it is a marked improvement over the old-fashioned methods. But to my mind, it is a shocking combination of impiety and mock philanthropy. The truth is that in this vast, overcrowded city, man is a drug, a superfluity. and I think many men and women end their lives out of an overwhelming sense of their own insignificance. In other words, from a mere weariness of feeling that they are nothing. They become nothing. I must bring this letter to an end, but before retiring I shall make a visit to the grand parlors of the hotel. You suppose I will walk there? Not at all, my dear brother. I shall sit down in a chair. There is an electric magazine in the seat of it. I touch a spring, and away it goes. I guide it with my feet. I drive into one of the great elevators. I descend to the drawing-room floor. I touch the spring again, and in a few moments I am moving around the grand salon, steering myself clear of hundreds of similar chairs, occupied by fine-looking men or the beautiful, keen-eyed, unsympathetic women I have described. The race has grown in power and loveliness. I fear it has lost in lovableness. Goodbye. With love to all, I remain your affectionate brotherly. Gabriel Wallstein. Chapter 2 My Adventure. My dear Heinrich, I little supposed when I wrote to you yesterday that twenty-four hours could so completely change my circumstances. Then I was a dweller in the palatial Darwin Hotel, luxuriating in all its magnificence. Now I am hiding in a strange house and trembling for my liberty. But I will tell you all. Yesterday morning, after I had disposed by sample of our wool and had called upon the assayer of oars— But without finding him to show him the specimens of our mineral discoveries, I returned to the hotel, and there, after obtaining directions from one of the clerks at the Bureau of Information, I took the elevated train to the great central park. I shall not pause to describe at length the splendors of this wonderful place, the wild beasts roaming about among the trees, apparently at dangerous liberty, but really enclosed by fine steel-wire fences, almost invisible to the eye. The great lakes full of the different waterfowl of the world. The air thick with birds distinguished for the sweetness of their song or the brightness of their plumage. The century-old trees of great size and artistically grouped. Beautiful children playing upon the greensward, accompanied by nurses and male servants. The whole scene constituting a holiday picture. Between the trees everywhere I saw the white and gleaming statues of the many hundreds of great men and women who have adorned the history of this country during the last two hundred years. Poets, painters, musicians, soldiers, philanthropists, statesmen. After feasting my eyes for some time upon this charming picture of rural beauty, I left the park. Soon after I had passed through the outer gate guarded by sentinels to exclude the ragged and wretched multitude but who at the same time gave courteous admission to streams of splendid carriages. I was startled by loud cries of, Look out there! I turned and saw a sight which made my blood run cold. A grey-haired, hump-backed beggar, clothed in rags, was crossing the street in front of a pair of handsome horses, attached to a magnificent open carriage. The burly, ill-looking flunky who, clad in gorgeous livery, was holding the lines, had uttered the cry of warning, but at the same time had made no effort to check the rapid speed of his powerful horses. In an instant, the beggar was down under the hoofs of the steeds. The flunky laughed. I was but a few feet distant on the sidewalk, and quick as thought, I had the horses by their heads and pushed them back upon their haunches. At this moment, the beggar, who had been under the feet of the horses, crawled out close to the front wheels of the carriage. And the driver, indignant that anything so contemptible should arrest the progress of his magnificent equipage, struck him a savage blow with his whip, as he was struggling to his feet. I saw the whip wind around his neck, and letting go the horse's heads, who were now brought to a standstill, I sprang forward, and as the whip descended for a second blow, I caught it, dragged it from the hand of the miscreant, and with all my power laid it over him. Each blow where it touched his flesh brought the blood, and two long red gashes appeared instantaneously upon his face. He dropped his lines and shrieked in terror, holding his hands up to protect his face. Fortunately, a crowd had assembled, and some poorly dressed man had seized the horse's heads, or there would have been a runaway. As I raised my hand to lash the brute again, a feminine shriek reached my ears, and I became aware that there were ladies in the open baroche. My sense of politeness overcame in an instant my rage, and I stepped back and, taking off my hat, began to apologize and explain the cause of the difficulty. As I did so, I observed that the occupants of the carriage were two young ladies, both strikingly handsome, but otherwise very unlike in appearance. The one nearest me, who had uttered the shrieks, was about twenty years of age. I should think, with aquiline features and black eyes and hair, Every detail of the face was perfect, but there was a bold, commonplace look out of the bright eyes. Her companion instantly arrested all my attention. It seemed to me I had never beheld a more beautiful and striking countenance. She was younger by two or three years than her companion. Her complexion was fair. Her long, golden hair fell nearly to her waist, enfolding her like in a magnificent, shining garment. Her eyes were blue and large and set far apart and there was in them, and in the whole contour of the face, a look of honesty and dignity and calm intelligence, rarely witnessed in the countenance of woman. She did not appear to be at all alarmed, and when I told my story of the driver lashing the aged beggar, her face lighted up, and she said, with a look that thrilled me, and in a soft and gentle voice, "'We are much obliged to you, sir. You did perfectly right.' I was about to reply when I felt someone tugging fiercely at my coat and turning around. I was surprised to find that the beggar was drawing me away from the carriage by main force. I was astonished also at the change in his appearance. The aspect of decrepitude had disappeared. A green patch that I had noticed covering one of his eyes had fallen off, and his black eyes shone with a look of command and power that was in marked contrast with his grey hair, his crooked back, and his rags. Come, he
1: said in a hoarse whisper. Come quickly, or you will be arrested and cast into prison. What for? I asked. I will tell you
0: hereafter. Look. I looked around me and saw that a great crowd had collected as if by magic. For this city of ten millions of people so swarms with inhabitants that the slightest excitement will assemble a multitude in a few minutes, I noticed, too, in the midst of the mob, a uniformed policeman. The driver saw him also, and recovering his courage, cried out, Arrest him! Arrest him! The policeman seized me by the collar. I observed that at that instant the beggar whispered something in his ear. The officer's hand released its hold upon my coat. The next moment the beggar cried out, Back! Back! Look out! Dynamite! The crowd crushed back on each other in great confusion, and I felt the beggar dragging me off, repeating his cry of warning. "'Dynamite! Dynamite!' <laughs> at every step until the mob scattered in wild confusion, and I found myself breathless in a small alley. "'Come, come!' cried my companion. "'There is no time to lose. Hurry, hurry!' We rushed along, for the manner of the beggar inspired me with a terror I could not explain, until after passing through several back streets and small alleys, with which the beggar seemed perfectly familiar— We emerged on a large street and soon took a corner elevator up to one of the railroads in the air, which I have described. After traveling for two or three miles, we exchanged to another train and then from that to still another, threading our way backward and forward over the top of the great city. At length, as if the beggar thought we had gone far enough to baffle pursuit, we descended upon a bustling business street and paused at a corner, and the beggar appeared to be looking out for a hack. He permitted a dozen to pass us, however, and carefully inspecting the driver of each. At last he hailed one and we took our seats. He gave some whispered directions to the driver and we dashed off. Throw that out of the window, he said. I followed the direction of his eyes and saw that I still held in my hand the gold-mounted whip which I had snatched from the hand of the driver. In my excitement I had altogether forgotten its existence, but had instinctively held
1: on to it. I will send it back to the owner, I said. No, no, throw it away. That is enough to convict you of highway robbery. I started and exclaimed, Nonsense! Highway robbery to whip a blackguard? Yes. You stop the carriage of an aristocrat. You drag a valuable whip out of the hand of his coachman and you carry it off. If that is not highway robbery, what is it? Throw it away. His manner was
0: imperative. I dropped the whip out of the window and fell into a brown study. I occasionally stole a glance at my strange companion, who, with the dress of extreme poverty and the grey hair of old age, had such a manner of authority and such an air of promptitude and decision. After about a half hour's ride, we stopped at the corner of two streets in front of a plain but respectable-looking house. It seemed to be in the older part of the town. My companion paid the driver and dismissed him, and opening the door, we entered. I need not say that I began to think this man was something more than a beggar. But why this disguise? And who was he? Chapter 3 The Beggar's Home The house we entered was furnished with a degree of splendor of which the external appearance gave no prophecy. We passed up the stairs and into a handsome room, hung around with pictures and adorned with bookcases. The beggar left me. I sat for some time looking at my surroundings, and wondering over the strange course of events which had brought me there, and still more at the actions of my mysterious companion. I felt assured now that his rags were simply a disguise, for he entered the house with all the air of a master, his language was well chosen and correctly spoken, and possessed those subtle tones and intonations which mark an educated mind. I was thinking over these matters when the door opened and a handsome young gentleman, arrayed in the height of the fashion, entered the room. I rose to my feet and began to apologize for my intrusion and to explain that I had been brought here by a beggar to whom I had rendered some trifling service in the street. The young gentleman listened with a smiling face and then extending his hand said,
1: I am the beggar, and I do now what only the hurry and excitement prevented me from doing before. I thank you for the life you have saved. If you had not come to my rescue, I should probably have been trampled to death under the feet of those vicious horses, or sadly beaten at least by that brutal driver.
0: The expression of my face doubtless showed my extreme astonishment, for he proceeded.
1: I see you are surprised, but there are many strange things in this great city. I was disguised for a particular purpose which I cannot explain to you, but may I not request the name of the gentleman to whom I am under so many obligations? Of course, if you have any reasons for concealing it, consider the question as not asked. No, I replied, smiling. I have
0: no concealments. My name is Gabriel Wellstein. I live in the new state of Uganda, in the African Confederation, in the mountains of Africa, near the town of Stanley, and I am engaged in sheep-raising in the mountains. I belong to a colony of Swiss from the canton of Uri, who, led by my grandfather, settled there seventy years ago. I came to this city yesterday to see if I could not sell my wool directly to the manufacturers, and thus avoid the extortions of the great wool ring, which has not only our country but the whole world in its grasp. But I find the manufacturers are tied hand and foot, and afraid of that powerful combination. They do not dare to deal with me and thus I shall have to dispose of my product at the old price. It is a shameful state of affairs in a country which calls itself free. Pardon me for a moment, said the young gentleman, and left the room. On his return, I resumed. But now that I have told you who I am, will you be good enough to tell me something about yourself?
1: Certainly, he replied, and with pleasure. I am a native of this city. My name is Maximilian Pechon. By profession, I am an attorney. I live in this house with my mother, to whom I shall soon have the pleasure of introducing you. Thank you,
0: I replied, still studying the face of my new acquaintance. His complexion was dark, the eyes and hair almost black, the former very bright and penetrating. His brow was high, broad, and square. His nose was prominent, and there was about the mouth of an expression of firmness. Not unmixed with kindness. Altogether, it was a face to inspire respect and confidence. But I made up my mind not to trust too much to appearances. I could not forget the transformation which I had witnessed from the rags of the ancient beggar to this well dressed young gentleman. I knew that the criminal class were much given to such disguises. I thought it better, therefore, to ask some questions that might throw some light upon the subject. May I inquire? I said. What were your reasons for hurrying me away
1: so swiftly and mysteriously from the gate of the park? Because, he replied, you were in great danger, and you had rendered me a most important service. I could not leave you there to be arrested and punished with a long period of imprisonment, because following the impulse of your heart you had saved my life and scourged the wretch who would have driven his horses over me. But why
0: should I be punished with a long term of imprisonment? In my own country, the act I performed would have received the applause of everyone. Why did you not tell me to throw away that whip on the instant, so as to avoid the appearance of stealing it, and then remain to
1: testify in my behalf if I had been arrested? Then you do not know, he replied. Whose driver it was, you horsewhipped? No, I said. How should I? I arrived here but yesterday. That was the carriage of Prince Cabano, the wealthiest and most vindictive man in the city. If you had been taken, you would have been consigned to imprisonment for probably many years. Many years, I replied.
0: Imprisonment for beating an insolent driver? Impossible.
1: No jury would convict me of such an offense. Jury, he said with a bitter smile. It is plain to see you are a stranger and come from a newly settled part of the world and know nothing of our modern civilization. The jury would do whatever Prince Cabano desired them to do. Our courts, judges, and juries are the merest tools of the rich. The image of justice has slipped the bandage from one eye and now uses her scales to weigh the bribes she receives. An ordinary citizen has no more prospect of fair treatment in our courts, contending with a millionaire than a newborn infant would have of life in the den of a wolf. But, I replied rather hotly, I should appeal for
0: justice to the public through the newspapers. The newspapers, he said,
1: his face darkened as he spoke. The newspapers are simply the hired mouthpieces of power, the devil's advocates of modern civilization. Their influence is always at the service of the highest bidder. It is their duty to suppress or pervert the truth and they do it thoroughly. They are paid to mislead the people under the guise of defending them. A century ago, this thing began, and it has gone on, growing worse and worse, until now the people laugh at the opinions of the press and doubt the truth even of its reports of occurrences. "'Can this be possible?' I said. "'Let me demonstrate it to you,' he
0: replied, and, stepping to the wall, he spoke quietly into a telephone tube of
1: which there were a number ranged upon a wall, and said, Give me the particulars of the whipping of Prince Cabano's coachman this afternoon at the south gate of Central Park. Almost immediately a bell rang, and on the opposite
0: wall in what I had supposed to be a mirror appeared these words. From the Evening Guardian A horrible outrage, highway robbery, $1,000 reward— This afternoon, about three o'clock, an event transpired at the south gate of Central Park which shows the turbulent and vicious spirit of the lower classes and reinforces the demand we have so often made for repressive measures and a stronger government. As the carriage of our honoured fellow citizen Prince Cabano, containing two ladies, members of his family, was quietly entering the park, a tall, powerful ruffian, Apparently a stranger with long yellow hair reaching to his shoulders suddenly grasped the valuable gold-mounted whip out of the hands of the driver, and because he resisted the robbery, beat him across the face, inflicting very severe wounds. The horses became very much terrified, and but for the fact that two worthy men, John Henderson of 5222 Delavan Street and William Brooks of 7322 Bismarck Street, "'seize them by the head. "'A terrible accident would undoubtedly have occurred. "'Police number B-17822 took the villain prisoner, "'but he knocked the guardian of the law down "'and escaped accompanied by a ragged old fellow "'who seemed to have been his accomplice. "'It is believed that the purpose of the thieves "'was to rob the occupants of the carriage "'as the taller one approached the ladies, "'but just then his companions saw the policeman coming "'and gave him warning, and they fled together.' Prince Cabano is naturally very much incensed at this outrage and has offered a reward of $1,000 for the apprehension of either of the ruffians. They have been tracked for a considerable distance by the detectives, but after leaving the elevated cars, all trace of them was suddenly and mysteriously lost. The whip was subsequently found on Bomba Street and identified. Neither of the criminals is known to the police. The taller one was quite young and fairly well-dressed and not ill-looking, while his companion had the appearance of a beggar and seemed to be about seventy years of age. The chief of police will pay liberally for any information that may lead to the arrest of the robbers. There, said my companion. What do you think of that? I need not say that I was paralyzed with this adroit mingling of fact and falsehood. I realized for the first time the perils of my situation. I was a stranger in the great city without a friend or acquaintance and hunted like a felon. While all these thoughts passed through my brain, there came also a pleasing flash of remembrance of that fair face and that sweet and gentle smile and that beaming look of gratitude and approval of my action in whipping the brutal driver. But if my new acquaintance was right, if neither courts, nor juries, nor newspapers, nor public opinion could be appealed to for justice or protection, then indeed might I be sent to prison as a malefactor, for a term of years, for performing a most righteous act. If it was true, and I had heard something of the same sort in my faraway African home, that money ruled everything in this great country, and if his offended lordship desired to crush me, he could certainly do so. While I was buried in these reflections, I had not failed to notice that an electric bell rang upon the side of the chamber and a small box opened, and the young gentleman advanced and took from the box a sheet of tissue paper, closely written. I recognized it as a telegram. He read it carefully, and I noticed him stealing glances at me, as if comparing the details of my appearance with something written on the paper. When he finished, he advanced
1: towards me with a brighter look on his face, and holding out his hand, said, I have already hailed you as my benefactor, my preserver. Permit me now to call you my friend. Why do you say so? I asked. Because, he replied, I know that every statement you made to me about yourself is literally true, and that in your personal character you deserve the respect and friendship of all men. You look perplexed. Let me explain. You told me some little time since your name and place of residence. I belong to a society which has its ramifications all over the world. When I stepped out of this room, I sent an inquiry to the town near which you reside, and asked if such a person as you claimed to be lived there. What was his appearance, standing, and character, and present residence? I shall not shock your modesty by reading the reply I have just received. You will pardon this distrust, but we here in the great city are suspicious, and properly so, of strangers, and even more so, of each other. I did not know but that you were in the employment of the enemies of our society, and sought to get into my confidence by rendering me a service, for the tricks to which the detectives resort are infinite. I now trust you implicitly, and you can command me in everything." I took his
0: hand warmly and thanked him cordially. It was impossible to longer doubt that frank and beaming face. "'But,' I said, "'are we not in great danger? "'Will not that hackman, for the sake of the reward, "'inform the police of our
1: whereabouts?' "'No,' he said. "'Have no fears upon that score. "'Did you not observe that I permitted about a dozen hacks to pass me "'before I hailed the one that brought us here?' That man wore on his dress a mark that told me he belonged to our brotherhood. He knows that if he betrays us, he will die within twenty-four hours, and that there is no power on earth that could save him. If he fled to the uttermost ends of the earth, his doom would overtake him with the certainty of fate. So have no uneasiness. We are safe here, as if a standing army of a hundred thousand of our defenders surrounded this house." Is that the explanation, I asked, of the policeman releasing his grip upon my coat?
0: Yes, he replied quietly. Now, said I, who is this Prince Cabano, and how does he happen to be called Prince? I thought your republic eschewed all titles of nobility.
1: So it does, he replied, by law. But we have a great many titles which are used socially by courtesy. The prince, for instance, when he comes to sign his name to a legal document, writes it Jacob Isaacs. But his father, when he grew exceedingly rich and ambitious, purchased a princedom in Italy for a large sum, and the government, being hard up for money, conferred the title of prince with the estate. His son, the present Isaacs, succeeded, of course, to his estates and his title. Isaacs, I said, is a Jewish name? Yes, he replied. The aristocracy of the world is now almost altogether of Hebrew origin. Indeed, I asked. How does that happen? Well, he replied, It was the old question of the survival of the fittest. Christianity fell upon the Jews, originally a face of agriculturists and shepherds, and forced them, for many centuries, through the most terrible ordeal of persecution the history of mankind bears any record of. Only the strong of body, the cunning of brain, the long-headed, the persistent, the men with capacity to live where a dog would starve, survived the awful trial. Like breeds like, and now the Christian world is paying in tears and blood for the sufferings inflicted by their bigoted and ignorant ancestors upon a noble race. When the time came for liberty and fair play, the Jew was master in the contest with the Gentile who hated and feared him. They are the great money-getters of the world. They rose from dealers in old clothes and peddlers of hats to merchants to bankers to princes. They were as merciless to the Christian as the Christian had been to them. They said with Shylock, The villainy you teach me I will execute, and it shall go hard, but I will better the instruction. The wheel of fortune has come full circle and the descendants of the old peddlers now own and inhabit the palaces where their ancestors once begged at the back doors for second-hand clothes, while the posterity of the former lords have been, in many cases, forced down into the swarming misery of the lower classes. This is a sad world, and to contemplate it is enough to make a man a philosopher, but he will scarcely know whether to belong to the laughing or the weeping school. Whether to follow the example of Democritus or Heraclitus, and may I ask, I said, what is the nature of your society? I cannot tell you more at this time, he replied, than that it is a political secret society having a membership of millions and extending all over the world. Its purposes are the good of mankind. Some day, I hope you may learn more about it. Come, he added. Let me show you my house and introduce you to my
0: mother. Touching a secret spring in the wall, a hidden door flew open and we entered a small room. I thought I had gotten into the dressing room of a theater. Around the walls hung a multitude of costumes, male and female, of different sizes and suited for all conditions of life. On the table were a collection of bottles, holding what I learned were hair dyes of different colors, and there was also an assortment of wigs, beards, and mustaches of all hues. I thought I recognized among the former the coarse white hair of the quondam beggar. I pointed it out to him. Yes, he said with a laugh. I will not be able to wear that for some time to come. Upon another table there was a formidable array of daggers, pistols, and guns, and some singular-looking iron and copper things, which he told me were cartridges of dynamite and other deadly explosives. I realized that my companion was a conspirator. But of what kind? I could not believe evil of him. There was a manliness and kindliness in his face which forbade such a thought, although the square chin and projecting jaws and firm-set mouth indicated a nature that could be most dangerous, and I noticed sometimes a restless, wild look in his eyes. I followed him into another room, where he introduced me to a sweet-faced old lady with the same broad brow and determined but gentle mouth which so distinguished her son. It was evident that there was great love between them, although her face wore a troubled and anxious look at times, as she regarded him. It seemed to me that she knew he was engaged in dangerous enterprises. She advanced to me with a smile and grasped both my hands with her own as she said, My son has already told me that you have this day rendered him and me an inestimable service. I need not say that I thank you with all my heart. I made light of the matter and assured her that I was under greater obligations to her son than he was to me. Soon after we sat down to dinner, a sumptuous meal, to which it seemed to me all parts of the world had contributed, we had much pleasant conversation, for both the host and the hostess were persons of ripe information. In the old days, our ancestors wasted years of valuable time in the study of languages that were no longer spoken on the earth, and civilization was thus cramped by the shadow of the ancient Roman Empire, whose dead but sceptered sovereigns still ruled the spirits of mankind from their urns. Now every hour is considered precious for the accumulation of actual knowledge of facts and things, and for the cultivation of the graces of the mind so that mankind has become wise in breadth of knowledge, and sweet and gentle in manner. I expressed something of this thought to Maximilian, and he replied,
1: Yes, it is the greatest of pities that so noble and beautiful a civilization should have become so hollow and rotten at the core. Rotten at the core, I exclaimed in astonishment. What do you mean? What I mean is that our civilization has grown to be a gorgeous shell a mere mockery, a sham, outwardly fair and lovely, but inwardly full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. To think that mankind is so capable of good and now so cultured and polished, and yet all above is cruelty, craft, and destruction, and all below is suffering, wretchedness, sin, and shame. What do you mean? I asked that civilization is a gross and dreadful failure for seven-tenths of the human family, that seven-tenths of the backs of the world are insufficiently clothed, seven-tenths of the stomachs of the world are insufficiently fed, seven-tenths of the minds of the world are darkened and despairing and filled with bitterness against the author of the universe. It is pitiful to think what society is, and then to think what it might have been if our ancestors had not cast away their magnificent opportunities, had not thrown them into the pens of the swine of greed and gluttony. But, I replied,
0: the world does not look to me after that fashion. I have been expressing to my family my delight at viewing the vast triumphs of man over nature, by which the most secret powers of the universe have been captured and harnessed for the good of our race. Why, my friend, this city preaches at every pore, in every street and alley, in every shop and factory, the greatness of humanity, the splendor of civilization. True, my
1: friend, replied Maximilian, but you see only the surface, the shell, the crust of life in this great metropolis. Tomorrow we will go out together and I shall show you the fruits of our modern civilization. I shall take you not upon the upper deck of society where the flags are flying, the breeze blowing, and the music playing, but down into the dark and stuffy depths of the hold of the great vessel, where the sweating gnomes in the glare of the furnace heat furnish the power which drives the mighty ship resplendent through the seas of time. We will visit the underworld.
0: But I must close for tonight and subscribe myself affectionately, your brother, Gabriel. Chapter 4. The Underworld My dear Heinrich, since I wrote you last night, I have been through dreadful scenes. I have traversed death and life. I have looked with my very eyes on hell. I am sick at heart. My soul sorrows for humanity. Max, for so I have come to call my new found friend, woke me very early, and we breakfasted by lamplight. Yesterday he had himself dyed my fair locks of a dark brown, almost a black hue, and had cut off some of my hair's superfluous length. Then he sent for a tailor, who soon arrayed me in garments of the latest fashion and most perfect fit instead of the singular-looking mountaineer of the day before for whom the police were diligently searching and on whose head a reward of $1,000 had been placed. Never before had my head been valued so highly. There was nothing in my appearance to distinguish me from the thousands of other gallant young gentlemen of this great city. A carriage waited for us at the door. We chatted together as we drove along through the quiet streets. I asked him,
1: Are the degraded and even the vicious members of your brotherhood? No, not the criminal class, he replied. For there is nothing in their wretched natures on which you can build confidence or trust. Only those who have fiber enough to persist in labor, under conditions which so strongly tend to drive them into crime, can be members of our brotherhood. May I ask the number of your membership? In the whole world they amount to more than one hundred millions. I started with astonishment. But amid such numbers, I said, there must certainly be some traitors. True, but the great multitude have nothing to tell. They are the limbs and members, as it were, of the organization. The directing intelligence dwells elsewhere. The multitude are like the soldiers of an army. They will obey when the time comes, but they are not taken into the councils of war. A half hour's ride brought us into the domain of the poor— An endless
0: procession of men and women with pails and baskets, small-sized pails and smaller baskets, streamed along the streets on their way to work. It was not yet six o'clock. I observed that both men and women were undersized and that they all very much resembled each other, as if similar circumstances had squeezed them into the same likeness. There was no spring to their steps and no laughter in their eyes. All were spare of frame and stolid or hungry-looking. The faces of the middle-aged men were haggard and wore a hopeless expression. Many of them scowled at us with a look of hatred as we passed by them in our carriage. A more joyless, sullen crowd I have never beheld. Street after street they unrolled before us. There seemed to be millions of them. They were all poorly clad, and many of them in rags. The women, with the last surviving instinct of the female heart, had tried to decorate themselves and here and there I could observe a bit of bright color on bonnet or apron, but the bonnets represented the fashion of ten years past, and the aprons were too often frayed and darned, and relics of some former, more opulent owners. There were multitudes of children, but they were without the gambols which characterized the young of all animals, and there were not even the chirp of a winter bird about them. Their faces were prematurely aged and hardened, and their bold eyes revealed that sin had no surprises for them. And every one of these showed the intense look which marks the awful struggle for food and life upon which they had just entered. The multitude seemed, so far as I could judge, to be of all nations commingled. The French, German, Irish, English, Hungarians, Italians, Russians, Jews, Christians, and even Chinese and Japanese. The slant eyes of the many and their imperfect Tartar like features reminded me that the laws made by the Republic in the elder and better days against the invasion of the Mongolian hordes had long since become a dead letter. What struck me most was their incalculable multitude and their silence. It seemed to me that I was witnessing the resurrection of the dead, and that these vast streaming endless swarms were the condemned, marching noiselessly as shades to unavoidable and everlasting misery. They seemed to be merely automata, in the hands of some ruthless and unrelenting destiny. They lived and moved, but they were without heart or hope. The illusions of the imagination, which beckon all of us forward, even over the roughest paths and through the darkest valleys and shadows of life, had departed from the scope of their vision. They knew that tomorrow could bring them nothing better than today the same shameful, pitiable, contemptible, sordid struggle for a mere existence. If they produced children, it was reluctantly or unmeaningly, for they knew the wretches must tread in their footsteps and enter like them that narrow, gloomy, high-walled pathway, out of which they could never climb, which began almost in infancy and ended in a pauper's grave. Nay, I am wrong, not even in a pauper's grave or they might have claimed perhaps some sort of ownership over the earth which enfolded them, which touched them and mingled with their dust. But public safety and the demands of science had long ago decreed that they should be whisked off as soon as dead, a score or two at a time, and swept on iron tramcars into furnaces, heated to such intense white heat that they dissolved, crackling, even as they entered the chamber, and rose in nameless gases through the high chimney. That towering structure was the sole memorial monument of millions of them. Their graveyard was the air. Nature reclaimed her own with such velocity that she seemed to grudge them the very dust she had lent them during their wretched pilgrimage. The busy, toiling, rushing, roaring, groaning universe, big with young, appeared to cry out. Away with them. Away with them. They have had their hour. They have performed their task. Here are billions spirits waiting for the substance we loaned them. The spirits are boundless in number. Matter is scarce. Away with that. I need not tell you, my dear brother, of all the shops and factories we visited. It was the same story everywhere. Here we saw exemplified in its full perfection that iron law of wages which the old economists spoke of that is to say, the reduction by competition of the wages of the worker to the least sum that will maintain life and muscular strength enough to do the work required, with such little surplus of vitality as might be necessary to perpetuate the wretched race, so that the world's work not end with the death of one starved generation. I do not know if there is a hell in this spiritual universe, but if there is not, one should certainly be created for the souls of the men who originated, or justified or enforced that damnable creed. It is enough, if nothing else, to make one a Christian when he remembers how diametrically opposite to the teaching of the grand doctrine of brotherly love enunciated by the Gentile Nazarene is this devil's creed of cruelty and murder, with all its steadily increasing world horrors, before which today the universe stands appalled. Oh, the pitiable scenes, my brother, that I have witnessed. Room after room, the endless succession of the stooped, silent toilers. Old, young, men, women, children. And most pitiable of all, the leering, shameless looks of invitation cast upon us by the women, as they saw two well-dressed men pass by them. It was not love, nor license, nor even lust. It was degradation, willing to exchange everything for a little more bread. And such rooms, garrets, sheds, dark, foul, gloomy, overcrowded, with such a stench in the thick air as made us gasp when entering it, an atmosphere full of life hostile to the life of man. Think, my brother, as you sit upon your mountainside, your gentle sheep feeding around you, breathing the exquisite air of those elevated regions and looking over the mysterious ancient world and the great river valleys leading down to the marvelous Nile land afar. Land of temples, ruins, pyramids, the cradle of civilization, grave of buried empires. Think, I say, of these millions condemned to live their brief hopeless span of existence under such awful conditions. See them as they eat their midday meal, no delightful pause from pleasant labor, No brightly arrayed table, no laughing and loving faces around a plenteous board with delicacies from all parts of the world. No agreeable interchange of wisdom and wit and courtesy and merriment. No, none of these. Without stopping in their work under the eyes of sullen taskmasters, they snatch bites out of their hard dark bread like wild animals and devour it ravenously. Toil, 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 from early morn until late at night, and then home they swarm, tumble into their wretched beds, snatch a few hours of disturbed sleep, battling with vermin in a polluted atmosphere, and then up again and to work, and so on, and on, in endless, mirthless, hopeless, round, until in a very few years consumed with disease, mere rotten masses of painful wretchedness, they die and are wheeled off to the great furnaces their bodies are eaten up by the flames, even as their lives have been beaten up by society. I asked one of the foremen what wages these men and women received. He told me. It seemed impossible that human life could be maintained upon such a pittance. I then asked whether they ever ate meat. No, he said, except when they had a rat or mouse. A rat or mouse, I exclaimed. Oh, yes, he replied. The rats and mice were important articles of diet, just as they had been for centuries in China. The little children, not yet able to work, fished for them in the sewers with hook and line, precisely as they had done a century ago in Paris, during the great German siege. A dog, he added, was a great treat. When the authorities killed the vagrant hounds, there was a big scramble among the poor for the bodies. I was shocked at these statements, and then I remembered that some philosopher had argued that Cannibalism had survived almost to our own times in the islands of the Pacific Ocean, because they had contained no animals of large size with which the inhabitants could satisfy the dreadful craving of the system for flesh food, and hence they devoured their captives. Did these people ever marry? I inquired. Marry! he exclaimed with a laugh. Why, they could not afford to pay the fee required by law. And why should they marry? There is no virtue among them. "'No,' he said. "'They had almost gotten down to the condition of the Australian savages, "'who, if not prevented by the police, "'would consummate their animal-like nuptials in the public streets. "'Maximilian told me that this man was one of the Brotherhood. "'I did not wonder at it. "'From the shops and mills of honest industry, Maximilian led me, "'it was still broad daylight, into the criminal quarters.' We saw the wild beasts in their lairs, in the iron cages of circumstance which civilization has built around them, from which they too readily break out to desolate their fellow creatures. But here too were the fruits of misgovernment. If it were possible, we might trace back from yonder robber and murderer, a human hyena, the long ancestral line of brutality, until we see it startling from some poor peasant of the Middle Ages trampled into crime under the feet of feudalism. The little seed of weakness or wickedness has been carefully nursed by society, generation after generation, until it has blossomed at last in this destructive monster. Civilization has formulated a new variety of the genus Homo, and it must inevitably perpetuate its kind. The few prey on the many, and in turn few of the many prey upon all. These are the brutal violators of justice who go to prison or to the scaffold for breaking through a code of laws under which peaceful but universal injustice is wrought. If there were enough of these outlaws, they might establish a system of jurisprudence for the world under which it would be lawful to rob and murder by the rule of the strong right hand, but criminal to reduce millions to wretchedness by subtle and cunning arts. And hoity-toity the prisons would change their tenants and the brutal plunders of the few would give place to the cultured spoilers of the many. And when you come to look at it, my brother, how shall we compare the conditions of the well-to-do man, who has been merely robbed of his watch and purse, even at the cost of a broken head, which will heal in a few days with the awful doom of the poor multitude, who from the cradle to the grave work without joy and live without hope?' Who is there that would take back his watch and purse at the cost of changing places with one of these wretches? And who is there that, if the choice were presented to him, would not prefer instant death, which is but a change of conditions, a flight from world to world, or, at worst, annihilation, rather than to be hurled into the living tomb which I have depicted, there to grovel and writhe, pressed down by the sordid mass around him until death comes to his relief? And so it seems to me that, in the final analysis of reason, the great criminals of the world are not these wild beasts who break through all laws, whose selfishness takes the form of the bloody knife, the firebrand, or the bludgeon, but those who, equally selfish, corrupt the foundations of government and create laws and conditions by which millions suffer, and out of which these murderers and robbers naturally and unavoidably arise but I must bring this long letter to a conclusion and subscribe myself with love to all. Your affectionate brother, Gabriel. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for seven seventy-seven per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.